Every year on June 3rd, thousands of people converge on the city of Kampala in Uganda. They come here to celebrate Ugandan Martyrs' Day. These pilgrims gather at a shrine to remember the sacrifice of 45 Christian men who were killed there in the 1880s. As a Ugandan woman, I grew up with this story that the church tells, which is that these young men, most of them in their late teens, were murdered by King Mwanga II, the last king to rule Buganda before colonization by the British. Mwanga had 14 wives, 10 children, and a massive country to lead. And Mwanga was also rumored to be gay. And depending on who tells this story, Mwanga's sexuality either had everything or nothing to do with the 45 Christians who were killed and the fall of the Buganda Kingdom to the British Empire. I'm Ida Holly-Nambi, and you're listening to Afroqueer. The story of King Mwanga is a story you grow up with in the Ugandan setting. You start hearing about him when you're in primary school, and you grow up hearing about his experiences and the things he did. This is the writer Nakisanze Segawa. From when she was a young girl, she remembers hearing the story of King Mwanga, and it stuck with her. She was so fascinated by the story, she wrote a novel about him. It's called The Triangle, and it's a work of historical fiction. You grow up not liking him, but uh, as adults, it's our responsibility sometimes to dig deeper and have a wider understanding of all the historical characters that we come across. Let's start with Mwanga's dad and predecessor, Kabaka Mutesa I. Mutesa ruled the Kingdom of Buganda for 28 years. During Mutesa's reign, outsiders began to arrive in the kingdom. The Arabs had come and they had influenced the king, that's Mwanga's father, of Buganda Kingdom to become a Muslim. While Kabaka Mutesa was interested in Islam, the religion had practices that contradicted Kiganda culture at the time, such as circumcision. And amongst the Baganda, a king's blood should never be spilled. Then Mutesa met missionaries from different parts of the world, telling similar stories of one god out of one book, the Bible. And he saw an opportunity to introduce reading and writing to his people. When Anglicans and Catholics from Britain and France arrived in the kingdom, they convinced Mutesa to give Christianity a try, which he did. That is, until they told him it would mean marrying only one wife. And this is a king who is husband to all. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm a husband to all. How can I have one wife? In the Buganda kingdom at this time, not only were men, especially the king, expected to have multiple wives, 
But one of his titles, Buffet, literally translates to our husband. And everybody in the kingdom, women and men, called him that. Negotiating the interests of these new faiths in his kingdom and maintaining the will of the Baganda traditionalists, who had their own spiritual practices, was a political balancing act, only just managed by Mutesa. When Mutesa died, he was succeeded by his teenage son, Kabaka Mwanga II, and Mwanga found it much harder to keep the peace. Division started appearing within his people, and that created conflict. So the Baganda, who were a Baganda with their one traditional faith, started being the Baganda, who were Anglicans, the Baganda, who were Catholics, the Baganda, who were Muslims, and the Baganda, who were traditionalists. And that created chaos. The chaos was playing out inside Mwanga's palace, amongst a group of boys and young men known as pages. Pages were the sons of elite members of society who were sent to wait upon the king. They did so, hoping to attain prominent positions later in their political careers. While they were at the palace, these young men met the foreign missionaries, and many of them converted to Christianity. Pages stopped listening at him. Uh, They started disregarding him, telling them that there was this other spring king called Jesus. Mwanga gave the pages an ultimatum. There was a moment when they had to choose uh, whether to be with the missionaries or to stay with their king, and some of them chose uh, missionaries and their religion. For the pages who chose Christianity over their kabaka, over the kingdom, Wanga sentenced them to death. The pages were gathered at a palace in Munyonyo on the shores of what is now called Lake Victoria. They were led through the city for over 21 kilometers until they reached the execution grounds at a place called Namugongo. There, sticks and branches were gathered and formed into pyres. And 22 Catholics and 23 Anglican pages were burnt at the stake. That's how it happened. It was, I think, um, for me, struggle for power and influence over the subjects uh, between the king and the missionaries, mainly. These killings are usually attributed to Kabaka Mwanga and Mwanga alone. But he did not rule in a vacuum. At that time, the word kabaka only loosely translated to king, but really functioned somewhere in between the idea of a supreme being, a god, and a president beholden to strict governance structures. He had county governors, clan leaders, and members of parliament to answer to. So a king wouldn't come and make a very huge decision for the kingdom without consulting with these various stakeholders. He didn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to kill these people. Many of the people, powerful people during his reign, the ones he governed Buganda with, agreed to this. They saw the divisions that were happening 
in their communities, in their kingdom. And to them, this was unacceptable. So Mwanga consulted with the elders. I don't often hear about the democratic state process that went into the decision to execute the pages. What I do often hear about is the other angle to the Christian narrative. Writings by European missionaries about Mwanga in books and journals, published in the late 1800s and early 1900s, found colorful ways to call Mwanga gay. Barbaric sexual depravity. Private vices acquired from the Arabs. Vicious propensities. The story goes that Mwanga was close to his pages. Like, really close. That part of being a page of the palace meant having sex with a kabaka, whether you consented or not. Having found Christianity, the young pages started to refuse him. And when they said no, Mwanga got angry and ordered them to be killed. It's a common narrative. It's an, an anti-Mwanga narrative, perhaps also perhaps an anti-gay narrative, but I don't believe that. Nakisanze had heard that Mwanga was gay. Years back, it had been a few days before the annual Martyrs' Day celebrations. She was listening late at night to a radio station owned by the Kingdom of Buganda. And the host mentioned that Kabaka Mwanga had been gay. And I was really shocked and surprised as I, Muganda, listening to Radio CBS, you would wish or assume that they would want to protect that part of him. They wouldn't openly talk about his sexuality because it's a conservative institution and you would never assume that they would do that. But they did it. So that intrigued me and I was like, oh, that's very interesting. So I decided to do a lot of research and came to believe that he... um, He was a bisexual. On the one hand, Mwanga had 14 wives and 10 children with them. But on the other hand, the fact that the Kingdom of Buganda's radio station actually acknowledged Mwanga's queerness made it likely for Nakisanze that our husband, the king, swung both ways. There's two sides to a story, isn't it? But if you stick to one side, you, you may not capture the complete picture. Mwanga lost, and you know, history is always written by the winners. So what I try to do is to write the history of the losers. It's not very easy, but I tried. This is Professor Samwiri Luanga Lunigo. He is a retired history professor who used to teach at Makerere University in Uganda. He was also a speechwriter for Ugandan President Museveni. He published a book on Mwanga, intent on creating a revisionist history to the ones on record. The narrative was still the missionary colonial narrative. Uh, But over the years, through my reading, I think I have changed the narrative and people appreciate this other narrative. The old narrative was that uh, Mwanga was a devil. Then he killed uh, these young Christians. And of course that he was a homosexual. 
this figured very prominently. For the professor, the story of Mwanga is a valiant tale of a young king's efforts to resist British colonial rule. And the label of homosexual was a skillful ploy by the British to dethrone Mwanga. 19th century Uganda was a very traditional society. And uh, I'm a Muganda, but let me claim that the Baganda were civilized. And that's why they are called conservative, because they have got something to conserve. And in order to make Mwang unpopular amongst his own people, they had to invent that fiction. Mwanga was accused of being a homosexual around the same time that the famous British poet Oscar Wilde was being put on trial in Britain for sodomy. Anti-gay sentiment was strong amongst the British. Could that have been part of the strategy to colonize Uganda? Motesa the first. Uh, Mwanga's father had noted that uh, these foreigners were up to no good. And he knew a bit about the foreigners because he had sent an uh, invoice to Britain in 1879. And they stayed there for one and a half years, traveled widely over Britain. And when they came back, they told him that you are dealing with something very powerful. And he said, uh, I use his own words, uh, translation, that uh, they are coming to eat my country. Matessa warned his son that the Europeans were not to be trusted. But still, the missionary's power grew during Mwanga's rule. As more of his court became Christian, he began to suspect that his pages were also confiding state secrets to the white men teaching them the Bible. In 1884, the same year that Mwanga had become king, major European powers had met in Berlin with a map of Africa laid out on a table to divvy up the continent amongst themselves. Colonizing Africa would make Europe rich, and Britain had its eyes on Uganda. Colonization was fast. It involved plundering of natural resources, forced labor, a disruption to the ways of life of indigenous populations, and it involved violence, not just onto African bodies, but also African minds. Within less than three decades, 90% of the African continent was in the hands of European imperialists. For Professor Lunigo, acts of treason by the pages and a sense that religions were being used to grow foreign power in Buganda inspired Mwanga to persecute the 45 young men. But the killings did little to stem the power of the European colonizers. Instead, they backfired. When Mwanga ordered the killings of the pages, the foreign missionaries walked with them. But none of them intervened to try and save their subjects, their martyrs in the making. These young men, who had only been baptized very recently, what did they know about Christianity? No, there was no depth. They knew almost nothing. But these people were saying, there's hell, there's this, there's heaven. And if you stick with Jesus Christ up to the pious, you're going to heaven. And they thought that resurrection was 
around the corner. They say, okay, I may go to the fires tomorrow, but on Monday, I'll be back. They were very naive, they didn't know. But they drove these ignorant people into the fires. And then they used as an excuse, oh, the, post, the, the Christians are being burned. Uh, please come to their rescue. And the killing of the, the Christians was a big thing. So the, that was reason enough for them to come and make us slaves, uh, take our independence away. Mwanga had come to power in 1884. By 1886, the young men who would become known as the Ugandan martyrs had been killed at Namugongo. On October 30th that same year, the British newspaper The Times quoted the phrase, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. They made a case for saving the souls of these Africans they had heard of, who were ruled by a despotic gay teenager. In the decade that followed, Buganda descended into civil wars at various times, backed by different Christian and Muslim factions. Ten years after Mwanga had come to power, the kingdom fell to British imperial will and became part of British East Africa. Mwanga II died in exile in Seychelles in 1903, having failed to defeat the British, whose grip on power in the region had been secured by the turn of the century. It wasn't until 1962 that Buganda, which was expanded to include neighboring regions becoming Uganda, won independence from the British. The British used both the Bible and the sword very effectively. You first send in the missionaries to soften the natives. If they have got any beliefs, pluck them out and you insert your religion. Uh, and you tell them that, oh, you are the cast race. <laughs> oh, are we? Yes. Here's the book. The, the holy book says it. Can you read? And they taught people how to read and write. That was a big thing. Uh, reading and writing and uh, Jesus Christ were put together. They were not separated. Today, Uganda is a predominantly Christian nation. According to the 2014 census, 84% of the population is Christian, 14% is Muslim, and around 1% reported belonging to traditional African religions. They take out your culture, they take out your beliefs, and they insert theirs, right? And when they have done that, the rest is easy. These two versions, that Mwanga was gay, or at least bisexual, or that Mwanga was set up by the British to be seen as such, these are two versions of the Mwanga story that I had heard. But when I was researching this episode, I spoke to someone who told me another version. It's entirely possible that the missionaries witnessed perhaps a set of rituals that might have had nothing to do with sex as we know it, which the missionaries, either because they saw something or because they heard something secondhand, may have interpreted and recorded as sex. 
Rahul Rao is an academic who studies queer life and culture in post-colonial societies. He wrote a chapter about Mwanga in his 2020 book, Out of Time. When Rahul was researching the narratives around Mwanga, he came across a theory by Ugandan ethnomusicologist Sylvia Nanyongo Tamasuza. Her theory was that Baganda gender roles at the time that Mwanga lived would not have been anything that the missionaries would have been familiar with. And there's a possibility they could have just got it all wrong. Unnatural passion. Unnatural passions. According to that matrix, anyone who was a royal, whether anatomically male or female, was gendered masculine. Whereas anyone who was a commoner, whether anatomically male or female, or intersex or anything else, was, was gendered feminine. So that means having a penis or a vagina wouldn't determine your gender inside the king's courts. For example, one of Mwanga's sisters, as a princess, would be thought of as a man and would not have been able to marry. Someone who wasn't royal inside the palace would be thought of as a woman. That could have meant that when Mwanga was engaged in bodily intimacy, let's not call it sexual intercourse, was engaged in bodily intimacy with an anatomically male commoner, the Baganda might have understood that as opposite sex intercourse. But the European missionary, unaware of these gender codes or unwilling to give them any credence, might have seen that as same-sex intercourse. Okay, there's a lot of mites here. And that's the crux of this the foreigners might have misgendered and misinterpreted what they saw in the king's courts as same-sex intimacy. Or they might have gotten it right, and Buganda might have been a different society that actually had space for queerness in a way that present-day Uganda makes difficult. There isn't a clear distinction between history, the facts of what happened, and memory, what people think happened. And it's hard to know how much fiction passes for fact in the story of a potentially queer king of Buganda. Even with a history that not everybody can agree on, the depiction of Mwanga as a brutal, anti-Christian despot and sexual predator, the one put forward in Catholic writings, has stuck around. And there's a reason for this. With the introduction of a writing culture, the oral history tradition in Buganda has been slowly undermined. What passes for facts today are what was written down a long, long time ago by missionaries. But the work of missionaries didn't stop in the 1800s. Uganda declared independence from the British in 1962. Two years later, the Ugandan youth who had been killed were canonized, officially becoming martyrs. The process had taken decades, but the Vatican finally agreed. It was actually the largest group of people who had entered into sainthood at the same time. This was also a way for the Vatican to signal its indigenization by accepting African Catholics into the pantheon of Catholic saints. 
During the 1960s, country after country in Africa won independence and gained freedom from European colonial rule. By making a large number of African saints in this moment, the Catholic Church sent the message that Catholicism was not just native to Rome and Europe, that saints aren't just called Patrick and Nicholas and Christopher, but also Chizito, Mugagga, and Mukasa. There had been African saints before, of course, but this was a, a large and significant gesture. So that is why the story of the Uganda martyrs is remembered this well. It's, it has been kept in our memory by the Catholic practice of commemoration of martyrdom. Each version of Mwanga's story is a recollection that serves an agenda. For me, as a Muganda woman myself, and for us at Afroqueer, we are always looking for stories of pre-colonial queer Africans. If Mwanga was gay or bisexual, we then have a story of an African man before colonial rule, which directly contradicts the frequently used statements that homosexuality is un-African, un-Ugandan, or a Western import. But Mwanga is a messy figure. As an all-powerful king in the 1800s, consent and sexual ethics would likely not have featured in any of the sexual relationships he had with men or with women. He was a young king, but the history books paint a picture of a man who preyed on the young, adding an added layer of predatory concern. His story, largely put forward by the church, is a story in which he plays the villain. And I wanted to find out if this was true. I am a journalist, a Muganda woman, a chronicler of queer African life and love and history. So it was hard for me to conclude that I'll never know Mwanga's story. That was taken from me and all queer Ugandans when the British colonized our country and wrote our history books. And because of that, I'll never know the truth. This episode was reported by me, Ida Holly Nambi, and Mae Francis. Our field producers were Nakisi Serumaga and Patience Asaba Katushabe. Special thanks to our voice actors, Mervyn Driver, Jack Bodymead, Benjamin Gutteridge, Peter Burnett, and Partha Moman. Afroqueer is produced by me, Ida Holly Nambi, Sally Chum, and Mae Francis. Amelie Bertelliengo is our associate producer. Rachel Omoto is our social media manager, and Tevin Sudi is our audio editor. Our theme song is Power by Maya and the Big Sky. Afroqueer is supported by Google and PRX, as well as the Wellspring Philanthropic Fund, the Ford Foundation, and the Dune Foundation. You can follow us on Instagram at Afroqueer Podcast. We are on Twitter at Afroqueer Pod, and you can listen to all our episodes on our website www.afroqueerpodcast.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Ida Holly Nambi. Thanks for listening. Power ni ile, power ni ile ina control.